Smoking causes lung cancer, heart disease, emphysema, and may complicate pregnancy. Quitting smoking now greatly reduces most serious risks to your health. But whatever life choices you make, as long as you enjoyed this episode of the Golden Silent Films podcast, I'd say that's mission accomplished. Hello everyone and welcome back to your Surgeon General's Warning of the Silent Film World. The finest and highest quality of hand-rolled silent movie podcast for your enjoyment. We are the Golden Silent Films Podcast, and our lighters are out, ready to light up this episode for all of you fine folks. Before we get the fun started, let's give the usual Golden Silent Films Podcast social media roundup. As usual, please head over to Golden Silence Cast on Instagram for up-to-date info on this here little podcast. And for all the smokers and non-smokers on Twitter, just follow at Golden Silence one or just search Golden Silence Cast and we ought to pop up. All these screen names and sites will be in the episode description in case you are interested in checking us out. As always, we would love to have you on board. At both social spaces, you'll get behind-the-scenes pics and info, upcoming episode reveals, and other fun film-related materials. And great photos of our official podcasts, Gizmo and Soda. Also, if you're listening to this program on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, do leave a review, a rating, or both. All of those ratings and reviews help immensely. You've got opinions and we want to hear them. Live your best review leaving life and help our show grow and reach fellow silent film fans. Whether getting us more exposure in the podcast world or letting us know how we can improve, we appreciate all the feedback and always want to bring you the best show possible. And also, do subscribe to the Golden Silent Films podcast. While our output can be hit or miss, if you're subscribed, you will never miss an episode. And the moment new content drops, it's going to go straight to your listening device of choice. We're already a few sigs deep into our third season and don't want you to miss a second. Now, a little backstory on this episode. This may sound weird or politically incorrect or something, but people smoking has always fascinated me. Whether it's television or the movies, when someone is smoking, it looks super cool. I don't smoke. I don't advocate for it. I really hate the way the smell permeates everything, and I mean everything. But when someone cool is coolly lighting up a smoke on screen, it really is cool. Whether it's a noir detective or dame, or James Bond himself, there's just a magic about the act. Hell, even Pittsburgh Pirates manager Jim Leland puffing away like a smokestack in the dugouts of Old Three River Stadium is legendary around these parts. When I saw the title Nicotine Princess, I was sold. When I read The Smoke Fairies, I could not, not talk about this short. I came for the cigarettes and cigars, but when the smoke of the short cleared, there was an incredibly talented crew that came together to make a groundbreaking film that really deserves to be talked about. So, on that note, let's light this episode up. So, as we're watching this movie, after uh, the last few episodes, we've had a nice run of special edition DVDs, special edition Blu-rays, multi-discs, the finest quality, the finest special features. This one, we're pulling that back a little bit. We're going to head back to YouTube. Um, We're going to YouTube for the screening of The Nicotine Princess or The Smoke Fairy. Now, there are a ton of versions available for your visual consummation, I guess you could say, on YouTube. They all seem, to my untrained eyes at least, to be virtually similar. They all have the same 5 minute, 20 second running time. The only differences I could find are that some of them uh, differ a little bit visually and audibly. Some have different tints and color stuff going on, and a few have sound. 
few different music tracks, a few different um, pieces of music to accompany them. But the vast majority run with the regular black and white and zero sound. All very vanilla and plain Jane, I know. But I find having mostly uniform versions of a silent film on YouTube to really be a good thing. When there's a glut of weird versions with different lengths and colors and music, it really makes watching the film difficult. How do you know which is best? How do you know which is the real version? How do you know uh, which is the right runtime? Which one should you watch? All of those questions are unnecessary when there is a solid, similar versions out there to watch. So that is our where to watch for this episode. So with the pre-show festivities out of the way, it is time to begin the slow burn that is the biography segment of this episode. An incredibly talented team of people came together to make this short a reality. Before we get into the magical effects behind the film, let's travel around the world to meet the people behind the scenes. First, let's look at the director of our picture, James Stuart Blackton, born on January 5, 1875 in Sheffield, Yorkshire, England, to Henry Blackton and Jesse Stewart. Now that is, you heard me right, that is Blackton, T-I-N. Henry Blackton emigrated with his family to the United States in 1885 before changing the family name to Blackton, T-O-N. As long as you don't change the Stewart part, do whatever you want, Papa Blackton. I will not protest. Jay Stewart got his start as a reporter and illustrator for the New York Evening World. His talents weren't confined, confined to the printed page, however. At the same time, he was performing regularly on stage with English stage magician Albert Smith. They would put together a touring stage troupe presenting magic, magic lantern shows, drawings, ventriloquism, and recitations. This professional relationship would really have a great influence on Blackton. In 1896, Thomas Edison publicly demonstrated the Vitascope, one of the first film projectors, and Blackton was sent to interview Edison and provide drawings of how his films were made. Joe Donnan of Medium.com takes us further into this fortuitous meeting. He writes, Edison, seeing this as an opportunity for publicity, invited Blackton and Smith to his private filming cabin, where they created a short film of Blackton portraying Edison. Portraying Edison. Blackton was so impressed with this new technology that he used the opportunity to buy a series of films from Edison along with a vitoscope so they could play these films for paying audiences. We have mentioned before the litigious nature of Mr. Edison. It's true. He, liked, he never saw a lawsuit he didn't like. And so Blackton knew that, and he was in no hurry to upset the movie cart. Blackton had to buy, special, buy a special license from Thomas Edison so he could use his technology to create new films. This agreement included the production of movies exclusively for Edison, which he would later distribute on his own, Donnan adds. With the vitoscope now in, the, in their creative hands, Blackton and Smith wasted no time in creating their own silent film experiences. These earliest batches were produced under the banner of Edison Vitagraph before changing to the Commercial Advertising Bureau in 1897. A third name change, American Vitagraph, would see Blackton and Smith rise to prominence in 1898 with films like The Battle of Manila Bay and Tearing Down the Spanish Flag, both propaganda shorts inspired by the Spanish-American War, as well as the short film animation The Humpty Dumpty Circus. During this period, J. Stuart Blackton ran the Vitagraph Studios and produced, directed, and wrote its films. He even starred in some of the films, playing the comic strip character Happy Hooligan in a series of shorts. Since profits were constantly increasing, Blackton felt he could try any idea that sprang to his head 
and in a series of films, Blackton developed the concepts of animation. Blackton's first dip into the animated world came with the Enchanted Drawing, which hit the eyes of viewers in 1900, but possibly filmed a year earlier. In this short, Blackton sketches a face, a bottle of wine, a glass, and a top hat, and a cigar. Nicotine and smoke-related stories seem to be fertile ground for old Jay Stewart. In the Enchanted Evening, Blackton appears to remove the wine, glass, hat, and cigar as real objects, and the face appears to react. The animation used in the short is what we know today as stop, mo stop motion. The camera is stopped shot by shot where the single change is made and the camera is then started again. Blackton wasn't the first to use it, having been preceded by George Méliès, amongst others. But Blackton did it very well. Blackton wasn't the wasn't one to get by on past successes, you could say. He was constantly pushing boundaries. In an article by Brandy Ash entitled Pioneers of Animation for trueclassics.wordpress.com, we learn about his next seminal project. Brandy Ash writes, In 1906, Blackton created Humorous Phases of Funny Faces, which is credited by many scholars as the first truly animated film. The film shows several chalk drawings, actually simulated through the use of cutout animation, coming to life after Blackton's hand sketches and manipulates them on screen. Some elements of stop motion, stick puppetry, and live action were also used to bring these drawings to life. Now that groundbreaking film was followed up by 1907's The Haunted Hotel, another Vitagraph short directed by Blackton. For this production, Blackton stepped back from his full immersion into animation. The Haunted Hotel was mostly live-action, telling the tale of a tourist spending the night in an inn run by invisible spooks and spirits. Much of the effects work came from wires and other film tricks of the day. That's not to say it was completely free of animated work. One scene, a scene of a dinner making itself, was created with the use of stop-motion. Blackton returned to the animated world for 1907's Lightning Sketches, before going all live-action in 1908. He would be at the helm for the first American film version of Romeo and Juliet, filmed in New York's Central Park. This stretch of time saw Blackton become the king of adaptations. In addition to Romeo and Juliet, 1908 saw him film Macbeth and Antony and Cleopatra, starring Pittsburgher Maurice Costello and Florence Lawrence. In 1909, Blackton became so involved with the business side of Vitagraph that his filmmaking output started to slow down, but certainly did not stop. 1909 brought us not just Princess Nicotine, but adaptations of Oliver Twist, Les Miserables, and A Midsummer Night's Dream. A Tale of Two Cities came in 1911, and Richard III followed in 1912. He was quite a literary director. In addition to animation and adaptation, J. Stuart Blackton added political films to his repertoire with Battle Cry of Peace in 1915. Blackton, who co-directed, wrote, and produced, was firmly in the camp of getting the United States involved in World War I. The making of this film drew the support of former President Theodore Roosevelt, who convinced General Leonard Wood to loan Blackton an entire regiment of Marines to use as extras. Though he had the best of intentions, the film ended up causing quite a bit of controversy. A good deal of the backlash, fairly or unfairly, came from people who felt it was a militaristic propaganda film. Blackton eventually left Vitagraph to take his talents independent in 1917. After a handful of years, Blackton returned in 1923 as a junior partner to old pal Albert Smith. In 1925, Smith sold the company to Warner Brothers for more than $1 million, which is about $17.5 million today. Blackton did 
pretty good with his share of the sale until 1929. Unlike many people, and like many people in the United States, the stock market crash of 1929 destroyed his savings, eventually bringing about his bankruptcy in 1931. He spent his last years on the road, showing his old films and lecturing about the days of silent movies. Blackton would pass away on August 13, 1941, at the age of 66. His death was the result of injuries suffered after being struck by a car as he crossed the street with his son. At the time of his death, he was working for Hal Roach on experiments to improve color processes in backgrounds. He was innovating to the very end. J. Stuart Blackton was cremated and his ashes interred at Forest Lawn Memorial Cemetery in Glendale, California. Blackton's influence on the emerging genre of animation is undeniable. Yes, his animated vignettes are a little more than exhibitions of movie trickery, Brandy Ash writes. There is no attempt to tell a story. These short films were instead intended to wow the audience with the magic of the silver screen. Still, the primitive shorts demonstrated the tantalizing possibilities of film and ultimately provided much inspiration for further advancements in the blossoming field of animation. Now, as we start our next biography, we are continuing the theme of international filmmakers and following an incredibly talented cinematographer from a village in southern Italy and his rise to the glitz and glamour of Hollywood. Gaetano Antonio Gaudio was born on November 20th, 1883 in Cosenza, Italy. For a little geographical context, Cosenza is located in the Calabrian region of southern Italy. Despite being blessed with a super awesome birth name, the future cinematographer would go by Tonio Gaudio in professional circles, so he shall be Tony with us as well. His father and oldest brother both were professional photographers. Tony's start in the visual arts came with his assisting them before heading to Rome to attend art school. All of that confluence of experience and hard work would send the young man down a cinematic path. That path to the silver screen wasn't one that Tony would travel alone. In fact, his younger brother Eugene served the same apprenticeship at the family photo studio as Tony. All that would push Eugene to embark on a movie path himself, and an incredibly successful, if not short-lived one. Now let's turn to the Tonio Gaudio Foundation website at tonyogaudiofoundation.org to learn about these earliest examples of Tony's film work. The article reads, eventually he segued into cinema, starting with Napoleon crossing the Alps in 1903, and he eventually shot hundreds of short subjects for Italian film companies before moving to the U.S. in 1906. Now, let's talk a little bit more about that move to the States. Let's, let's dive in a little bit to him crossing the ocean. Tony would hit the ground running. He wasted no time in getting started in show business. His earliest years would find him working for some of the biggest companies and stars of the early era of film. The Tony Gaudio Foundation explains, In New York in 1906, Tony was employed by Al Simpson to produce song slides that could be shown in theaters so patrons could sing along with the music. After quitting Simpson in 1908, he worked in Vitagraph's film development laboratories in New York, then moved over to Carl Lemley's IMP, Independent Moving Picture Company, to supervise the construction of IMP's New York Laboratories. We'll put a pin on the Tony talk for now and get back to him post-film, and it is a conclusion you will not want to miss. Since we just stopped talking about someone who records images, let's talk about someone whose image was the one being recorded, and that is Gladys Houlette, our young fairy of the Nicotine Princess or the Smoke Fairy. 
She was born in Arcade, New York on July 21st, 1896. The future actress was born of showbiz roots, as her mother, Frances, was an opera singer and later a screen actress for Edison. The acting bug caught on early with Gladys, seeing as she began her stage career at the age of three. If you ask her, though, she considered her real debut to have been her appearance in a 1905 stage production at the ripe old age of nine. Since she was rolling early with the acting, she was educated privately. Gladys Hillette's earliest on-screen work came with some of the most legendary studios of this era of silent film. The early productions and appearances with roles in 1909 IMP release of Hiawatha and A Midsummer Night's Dream, as well as some work for Vitagraph that same year. Her big rookie year of 1909 also saw her appear in this episode's movie du jour, Vitagraph's Princess Nicotine or The Smoke Fairy. We now turn to the awesome Thanhauser website, which we've mentioned in past episodes. The site, www.thanhauser.org, gives a great retrospective look at the life of Gladys. The article relates a newspaper story, and it reads, An article in the New York Morning Telegraph, April 3, 1910, told of the young actress's work for the screen. A little New York girl, 14 years old, by the name of Gladys Hulette, is said to be more in demand as a moving picture artist than any other young woman in her profession. Her life before the camera has been full of events of the most thrilling nature. She is rather tall for her age and by clever makeup is competent to assume nearly every role from girlhood to mature womanhood. Those who frequent the moving picture shows of this country have no doubt seen her many times, sometimes chasing a burglar out of the house with a broom, sometimes riding wild ponies over the plains, running for her life over mountains and through valleys, being rescued by firemen, etc., etc., Yet with all these blood-curdling experiences, she has a decidedly childish face and appears to thoroughly enjoy life. Speaking of Thanhauser, that fantastic website breaks down her exploits for the New York-based film company. The article goes on to read, Gladys Hulette briefly worked for Thanhauser in 1911, during the time she was primarily with Edison, as was her mother. She was seen in Lorna Doone. After making many films with Edison, she departed for Thanhauser by September 1915. In the spring of 1916, Edwin Thanhauser offered a contract whereby she was to star in eight productions of five or more reels each per year. Miss Hulette remained with Thanhauser through early 1917. Her roles in Thanhauser films, often that of a lovable girl, were well received and found an appreciative audience. Exit polling, this is a cool story, I enjoy this one. Exit polling from students in the state of New York would certainly speak to her success with Thanhauser. I have some questions about the objectivity of this poll, but still, a win in a poll is a win nonetheless. In all my excitement about talking about this unscientific polling, I almost forgot to actually mention the poll itself. So, in early 1917, the students at New York University voted for their picks of the most popular movie actresses of the day. With nearly 9,100 ballots cast, Gladys was the clear winner with 5,643 votes, trailed by Mary Pickford, Viola Dana, and Mary Miles Minter. Not too shabby, I would say, so take that W. By 1917, Hallett was out of Thanhauser and getting work in films produced by William Part, a big-time director of the era. That same year, she would make arguably and possibly her most popular film to date, Streets of Illusion. She played the character of Beam opposite stars Richard Bartholomus and J.H. Gilmore. Gladys Hallett's connection to William Park wasn't strictly confined to the movie's sets. It actually got familial. 
She would spend seven years as his daughter-in-law starting when she married William Park Jr., the director's son, in 1917. Like I said, it only lasted seven years, and they would divorce in 1924. The Roaring 20s would be especially good for Gladys. That decade would see her in 30 films. It also, in a way, ended up being her high point in film as well. Once the 30s came up, Gladys, once the 30s ran out, Gladys went out with them. Oh sure, she made a handful of appearances, but her star was definitely on the decline. Hallette made her debut in sound films in 1933 with Torch Singer and her final credited film appearance, Her Resale Value. The next year, 1934, Hallette appeared in uncredited roles in The Girl from Missouri and One Hour Late. In 1948, her fortune had come full circle, in a bad way, as she was another form, as she and another former Thanhauser player, Grace DeCarlton, were both working as ticket sellers at Radio City Music Hall in New York City. Gladys Hallette died in Montebello, California in 1991 at the age of 95. With the production of this film, Nicotine Princess or The Smoke Fairy, Blackton and company set out to make a film to entertain and astound. These types of films were the logical next step of a stage magician. Blackton was heavily inspired by magic and the special effects film work coming out of France at the time. In an article for the National Film Preservation Society, we get a glimpse into the influences that built towards this smoking hot film. The article reads, Trick films were a specialty of the New York-based Vitagraph company, then America's leading film producer. Vitagraph had been founded back in 1897 by magician Albert E. Smith and J. Stuart Blackton, a newspaper illustrator and lightning sketch vaudeville cartoonist. Their interests intersected in trick films inspired by George Méliès' pioneering French fantasies. In this world of early film, Méliès' shadow loomed really over a lot of the advancements in movie special effects and filmmaking in general. But he wasn't the only French filmmaker whose work played a role in inspiring Blackton and his gang. That National Film Preservation Society article continues, Princess Nicotine, or The Smoke Fairy, found its immediate source in another French film, Emile Cole's The Animated Matches from 1908. Blackton's film used a double exposure for the fairy in the bottle, stop-motion animation for the rose that transforms into a cigar, as well as more mundane tricks, hidden wires, giant props, and a man under the table blowing smoke. Now, with our pre-show coming to a close, let's... We talked about it a little a second ago, but let's actually look at the movie proper. Look at some of those special effects that we just talked about and dream of a better world where fairies are helping you smoke. So as we talk about the movie proper, let's start with a, a quote from an incredible website that I love to read. It never gets old. There's always stuff to learn there, and that is Movies Silently. Now, Movies Silently had this to say as we set the narrative table. Princess Nicotine, or The Smoke Fairy was released to great acclaim in the summer of 1909. The film is a split-reel comedy, that is, it took up only part of a reel of film, dealing with a smoker and his war with some very naughty fairies. A gentleman, Paul Panzer, is seated at the table with cigars, cigarettes, a pipe, loose tobacco, wooden matches, really, everything someone might need for a good smoke sesh, and early-onset lung cancer, presumably. The gentleman in this film, like I said, is portrayed by Paul Panzer. The film already has English, Italian, American flavor. So with Panzer, let's add a little Bavarian upbringing to the festivities, to the mishmash, to the stew that is Princess Nicotine. 
Paul Wolfgang Panzerbader, a.k.a. Paul Panzer, was born in Würzburg, Bavaria on November 3, 1872. His education and life experiences led him in many different directions. The man studied pharmacy at the University of Würzburg, as well as studying vocal music at the Conservatory of Würzburg. On top of all that, he was a lieutenant in Germany's artillery reserves when he left the country and headed stateside. Panzer's early film work came with set building and scene painting for a New York film studio. This behind-the-scenes work opened his eyes to a possible future in show business and the film industry in general. His work also involved him getting experience in the world of live theater. So in addition to working on the stages, he also gained great experience as a stage manager for a period of time. Now, the first film credit I could find for Panzer came in an uncredited role in 1908's The Thieving Hand. Panzer was probably best known for playing Raymond Owen in the 1914 version of The Perils of Pauline. His career was incredibly robust from the mid-teens all the way to the mid-30s. One of his last couple roles came in an uncredited role as Rick's waiter in 1942's Casablanca and a role in a remake of The Perils of Pauline in 1947. So... Getting back to the film, the man puts aside his newspaper and yawns so we can put the action that follows into question. Is it a dream? Is it a not? I prefer to believe in a world of smoke fairies personally, so let's see. Let's assume this is real, I guess. The lid of the scar box swings open and two fairies emerge. A younger girl and a more mature one seems to be encouraging the young fairy to cause a bit of mischief. And by mischief, I mean pulling out the tobacco and sneaking the younger fairy inside. With the girl firmly inside of the pipe, the older fairy covers her in tobacco before sneaking back inside the cigar box. Well, the casting of these two fairy roles has always been a source of some debate. Luckily for us, the amazing website Movie Silently, which I implore you to check out and you can find at MoviesSilently.com, how always has the scoop and cuts through the misinformation. In an article from Movies Silently about the film, we learn a quick casting note before we continue. IMDb lists Hallette as the older fairy, but she is clearly playing the younger one. I know this because A, I have eyes with which I can see, and B, Hallette would have been shy of 13 when this film was made. While lovely, the actress playing the older fairy is clearly never going to see her teens again. This confusion stems from the fact that most American film studios of the 1900s did not identify their performers to the public, lest they become stars and ask for more money. Now, back to the film, the gentleman lights his pipe, but notices something a little off with it. With the help of a magnifying glass, the man takes a closer look at the smoking pipe. Inside the pipe, he finds the giggling fairy in the bowl. She waves and blows him kisses as she smolders. Curious, the man empties out the pipe and the fairy comes tumbling out. The older fairy opens a cigar box and both hop in and close the lid. Next up in this incredible journey of a smoker, the man picks up a rose. But this is no regular rose, mind you. When he wants to smell it, he gets a puff of smoke in his face for his trouble. This is a cool bit of effects here. It's the equivalent of a novelty squirting flower, but here, smoke is puffed out and makes for a great visual. He pulls out the magnifying glass again, only now to find a girl smoking in the middle of the rose. The concept of a woman or girl playing the part of a trickster is not new, unique to this picture we read from movies silently. Mischievousness would be a signature trait 
of the popular flapper genre in the 1920s, and you can see a dab of the little fairy in the stylish young ladies of the following decades. Gladys Hallett would be called on to play the imp once again when she was cast as Puck in Vitagraph's production of A Midsummer Night's Dream, which was released a few months after Princess Nicotine. Speaking of great special effects and visual effects, we get some really amazing stop-motion animation here in this next bit of the movie with matches, a pipe, and cigarettes moving around the table before eventually filing back into that magical cigar box. There is also a cigar that gets rolled through the magic of stop-motion animation. All super cool stuff, all really worth checking out. I mean, it's a five-minute film. It's amazing. Please do yourself a favor and check it out. Now, with that cigar rolled, the gentleman returns, picks it up with every intention of smoking it. He lights it and starts puffing away. He pulls his magnifying glass back out and inspects a nearby bottle. In it is that young but troublesome fairy. The gentleman pulls out a hammer and busts the bottle open, and the fairy is out in the open on the table. These effects look really amazing and blew my mind for when they were pulled off. We turn to www.filmpreservation.org website and an article about the film written by Scott Simmon as we examine these effects shots of the fairies on the table. Simmon writes, The shots of the tabletop fairies were accomplished through the ingenious onset optics rather than in-camera double exposures. The actresses performed on a platform next to the camera and their image was reflected in a mirror placed far behind the table. The trick also relied on a lens capable of extreme depth of field so that both the smoker and fairies are in focus. Because the camera height was aligned with the tabletop, the fairies appear to be dancing on it. In an effort to finally get one over on his fairy adversaries, the man blows smoke in the face of the girl. She does not respond favorably to this smoky barrage. To avenge herself, the girl builds a bonfire out of matches. She opens a matchbox up and builds a little but highly flammable match tower. While we're watching this bit, it is important to talk about the importance of oversized props in this short. They really help to add believability, I guess you could say, to the magical events on screen. In an article for the website silentology.wordpress.com, we get a deeper appreciation for the highly detailed work put into this film. The article reads, And while they might get overlooked in favor of examining the camera effects, the oversized props really help complete the illusion of those tiny fairies. The property man sure did a swell job. I appreciate the detail in that painted corncob pipe and the way the edges of the cigar box seem just a little worn. So the fairy sets fire to that pile of matches. The man extinguishes the fire with a soda siphon. In the process, he takes aim at the girl, spraying her, and eventually making her disappear. And that is how Princess Nicotine, or the Smoke Fairy, ends for us today. So now that the movie's over, let's talk about what I thought about it. I can easily say I really, really enjoyed this film. I am and always have been someone who is enamored by really good special effects in a film. There were several points in the short that I couldn't believe what I was seeing. It always amazes me when I see 100-plus-year-old movies that are still bringing better effects than what you see in a movie made in 2023. The stuff with the fairy on the table interacting with the guy was incredible and looked incredibly real. I couldn't believe it and loved every second of it. Back in 1909, Princess Nicotine was highly regarded for its delightful special effects. It was called a dainty trick film, and even today they look surprisingly well done, we learned from 
thesilentology.wordpress.com article. Turning back to movies silently, we read, Vitagraph billed the film as one of our best novelties. A wonderful conception and trick photography abounding in mystifying achievements and startling surprises. I would say that both of those quotes adequately describe my feelings for the special effects featured in this film. I also love the work of Paul Panzer in the short. He really did well in how he interacted with the people that weren't there physically. His acting really sold the illusions, and the filmmakers were really the beneficiaries of these great performances, of the fairies, uh, of Paul Panzer, just working on sets that were out of the ordinary, not something you're normally accustomed to as an actor or actress. Now, while we're talking about the acting performances, like I said, I really enjoyed the interplay between the man and the fairy. They had great chemistry and really sold the ever-escalating battle between the two. Movies silently also saw the magic in this duo. The article reads, The relationship between the little fairy and the smoker can be viewed as a preview of the Bugs Bunny Elmer Fudd school of antagonism, escalating attacks that grow ever more bizarre as the story proceeds. There is more than a little of the wascally wabbit in Gladys Hallett, I think. With the movie talk snuffed out, it is time to move on to the stalwart of every episode of the Golden Silent Films podcast. That is, where are they now? As we lay this episode to rest, it is time to find out where your favorite silent stars are laid to rest. This is a segment where we join our favorite cinematic stars on the other side. Well, the cemetery gates, the history, the art, the celebrity spectacle converge in Where Are They Now? Your guide to paying your respects to the cinematographers that have entertained us so much. Earlier in this biography segment, we were talking about the life of Italian cinematographer Tony Gaudio. It may have seemed like he got the short shrift. It may have seemed like we were hurrying through his life story. But I can tell you that is not the case. We actually jumped away from it because we have so much to cover now in his life post-Nicotine Princess. Starting in 1910, Gaudio was the chief of cinematographers at the Independent Moving Pictures Company, otherwise known as IMP. Legendary studio head Carl Lemley founded the company one year earlier in 1909. Though the company wouldn't exist for too long, it folded in 1912, Gaudio got some great experience and turned out some amazing work. In 1910, he was at the camera for the first their first misunderstanding, starring Mary Pickford, Thomas Ince, and Ben Turpin. Since we brought up Mary Pickford, Tonio Gaudio did a lot of work with Pickford. In 1911, he filmed Artful Kate with Mary and her husband, Owen Moore. He followed that up with Pictureland in 1911. The work at the Independent Moving Pictures Company soon became a family affair for the Gaudios when Tony's brother, Eugene, came on board. Eugene would work for IMP as the superintendent of its, developing, of its development lab before following his brother's footsteps and getting into the cinematography game himself. With IMP shuttered in 1912, Tony left to work for Biograph amongst a handful of other companies before finding a home at Metro Pictures in 1916, where his brother Eugene now worked as a director. At Metro, Tony shot 10 films alone for director Fred J. Balshoffer. In his run at Metro, one notable picture he was behind the camera for was the 1919 silent drama, The Red Lantern, starring Alan Nazimova and written by June Mathis. This film marked the on-screen debut of an uncredited Anna Mae Wong. While the cinematographer can often be a forgotten name in the credits, Tony, 
Gaudio was behind the lens for a lot of notable moments for sure. With his brother Eugene's passing in 1920, Tony would serve as the president of the American Society of Cinematographers from 1923 to 1924. This appointment would be of special significance seeing as Eugene helped create the professional body as a way to promote standardization in the industry and to serve as a clearinghouse for information for cameramen. Eugene died of an appendicitis attack, but he was well known and was a founding member of that American Society of Cinematographers, which led to Tony stepping up to take that position when it was his time. The brothers were always leading the way in pushing the limits of their craft, and this was just an official way to lead the pack. One of Tony's breakthroughs was the creation of a viewfinder for the new Mitchell camera in 1922. In the 1920s, Tony's work on Douglas Fairbanks pictures would usher in an era of new discoveries and innovations. The Mark of Zorro in 1920 saw Gaudio pioneer the use of a montage, and his work on Fairbanks' 1927 picture, The Gaucho, would feature one of the earliest two-strip Technicolor sequences. Tony Gaudio's name in filmmaker circles was made in the 20s, and his reputation preceded him. When First National was acquired by Warner Brothers in 1928, Gaudio also made the transition over to the new studio. His talents were really not something Warner's was in any hurry to let go of, so they wasted no time in signing him to a long-term contract in 1930. In time, he and fellow Italian immigrant Saul Polito would become the co-chief cinematographers at the studio, and their work would help fashion the distinct Warner Brothers look that was influenced by German Expressionism. When there were big, high-profile films to be shot, Warner Brothers turned to Gaudio and Polito to get the job done. Gaudio would bring home an Oscar for his black-and-white cinematography on 1936's Anthony Adverse. He shot Warner Brothers' first three-strip Technicolor film, God's Country and the Woman, a 1937 film directed by William Keeley. That success would lead the studio to assigning Gaudio and Keeley to what was at the time their most ambitious film project yet. The project would be 1938's The Adventures of Robin Hood. Unfortunately, the film went way over budget and the studio execs felt the film was taking too long to make. Due to these issues, Gaudio and Keeley were removed from the project by producer Hal B. Wallace. The film ended up being finished by the aforementioned Polito and director Michael Curtis. Despite the changes in command behind the camera, all four ultimately shared screen credit on the picture and Gaudio's footage remained in the film. Gaudio's success would go well into the 1940s when he shot High Sierra for director Raoul Walsh in 1941. Gaudio, by this time, was working in an ultra-realistic, documentary-like fashion that would be a precursor to what, be, what would become film noir. He left Warner's in 1943 after shooting 1943's Background to Danger and take his talents the freelance route. His next project in film came under the banner of Universal and their 1943 production, of Corvette K-225. His work on that earned Gaudio another Oscar nomination. His final Academy Award nomination for color cinematography this time came in 1946 for the 1945 film A Song to Remember. Tony Gaudio died on August 10, 1951 at the age of 67. The legendary cinematographer is interred in the Hollywood Forever Cemetery in Hollywood, California. In September of 2022, a memorial plaque honoring Tony Gaudio was unveiled in the historic city center, city center of Cosenza, the Calabrian city where he was born. 
This memorial plaque was placed on the same building where his photography career took off in the late 1800s. This building was the location of the family photo store and, in fact, has the old Photo Gaudio sign still intact in front of it. The Tony Gaudio Foundation for the Cinematic Arts promotes the cultural and cinematic arts for the next generation of dedicated filmmakers. This foundation is also working with the American Society of Cinematographers and the USC Italian Department on scholarships in the name of Tony Gaudio. It's a really cool way to keep the memory of a film master alive and well. With the ashtray adequately filled on this episode, we want to thank you for taking this trip with us. It's been a fun one and a totally unexpected journey. We try to stick to our schedule. We really do, I promise. I promise that to all of you. At the beginning of every season, we plot out the entire season's worth of episodes. But our short attention span often leads us astray. When this episode popped up, I knew it had to be covered, and I'm so glad we did. Did you enjoy the gratuitous on-screen use of tobacco as much as we did? What were your favorite moments from this technological wonder of a film? What trick shots in this flick really blew you away? Let us know all that and more at the various social media hangouts of the Golden Silent Films podcast. On that note, if you have forgotten, we are on Instagram and Twitter. Let us know what you think of this episode. What silent-related movies, past or present, do you want us to dip into next? Our world of silent movie knowledge and experience is constantly growing, and we need your input for our future episodes here in Season 3 and beyond. You can always light up with the Golden Silence cast on Instagram and Golden Silence 1 on Twitter. And again, if you listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcast outlet that allows it, subscribe, rate, review. I reckon it'll help a lot here, and we love hearing your thoughts and ideas. We really, really appreciate all of your incredible support, and seeing how much you folks are listening only makes us want to make bigger and better episodes. And with all that being said, thank you to all of you fine listeners for all of your fine listening. And as always, don't forget, the silence are golden, and the talkies, they're just a fad. This episode had a lot of chicanery involving smoking, a lot of uh, rude fairies, a lot of rude smokers. So we would be remiss in our duties if we didn't leave you with some ways to be a more responsible smoker. To that end, let's listen to Amy Vanderbilt, America's foremost authority on etiquette on the do's and don'ts of the smoking game. In a vintage ad, Vanderbilt writes, I do not like ash droppers. I dislike cigarette butts on my hearth and my potted plants and ground out in my best china. I do not like to see people smoking throughout their meals. Vanderbilt continues, I like considerate smokers. I like to see a man light his woman companion's cigarette and not make her do it. I like to see a woman smoke gracefully and moderately. I like to know that my escort is thoughtful enough to carry my brand of cigarette. Wise words to smoke by. Brought to you by the Golden Silent Films podcast. <laughs>